I'm Aman Bathija, transportation reporter for the Texas Tribune. <coughs> On behalf of the Tribune, welcome to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival and our planning for the future panel. The panel will last 60 minutes and we'll plan to carve out about 15 minutes at the end for audience Q&A. For those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest. There's also a track-specific hashtag, uh, TTFTranspo. Uh, we have got a great group of panelists here to talk about what Texas should and shouldn't be doing to tackle transportation and urban planning in a state growing as fast as Texas. Uh, to my immediate left is John Barton, Deputy Executive Director of the Texas Department of Transportation, where he oversees all of the agency's operations. Before that, he served as Assistant Executive Director for Engineering Operations. Previously, Barton worked as the Director of Transportation Planning and Development for the Wichita Falls District and as District Engineer for the Beaumont District. Uh, Deirdre Delisi chaired the Texas Transportation Commission from 2008 to 2011. For the better part of a decade, Deirdre has been a policy and political advisor to Governor Rick Perry, including a stint as his chief of staff. She is currently a partner at Delisi Communications, a public relations, government, and political consulting business. She also serves on the board of directors of Move Texas Forward, a group focused on addressing the state's mobility challenges. Next to her is Roger Williams, who was elected in 2012 to represent the 25th Congressional District based in Austin. Among his duties is sitting on the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure. Previously, he served as the Secretary of State of Texas, the state's chief liaison for Texas border and Mexican affairs, and chairman of the 2005 Base Realignment and Closure Response Strike Force. And next to him is Mike Heiligenstein, Executive Director of the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority and the President of the International Bridge, Tunnel, and Turnpike Association, which is the leading advocacy group for toll facility owners and operators and the businesses that serve them. He also serves on the advisory board of the Texas A&M Transportation Institute and previously worked as a public official in Williamson County for 23 years. And last but not least, we have Michael Morris, who, served with the North, who serves with the North Central Texas Council of Governments. After working as a transportation planner, senior transportation planner, and assistant director of transportation there, Michael has been director of transportation with uh, the COG since 1990. He is a member of the Association of Metropolitan Planning Organizations and the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm going to direct questions at one or two of you at a time, but I want this to be a conversation. Others can feel free to jump in. Uh, I want to start with John. Uh, when I think of TxDOT, uh, especially a lot of my reporting, it often focuses on how your agency doesn't have enough money to uh, address congestion as you want to with a, with a population growing as fast as Texas. But yet recently you've been talking about how you want to invest uh, TxDOT resources and funds into exploring futuristic technologies like self-driving cars. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you think that's important for the agency. Thank you, Amon. And first, thank you for allowing us to be here today to be a part of this panel. It's a, certainly an exciting opportunity for us. And as we think about transportation here in the state of Texas, across this nation, around the globe, I think it's pretty common that uh, public infrastructure is one of those areas where we've been challenged. Uh, we have growing populations, increasing traffic volumes, and as you said, Amon, we're not able to provide the type of reliability, safety, and mobility that many of our users would like to have and expect. But there is opportunities for us to take advantage of the technologies that the industry is bringing forward, uh, such as uh, driverless vehicles or autonomous vehicles. And if not that, in the near term or midterm, perhaps it's just vehicles that can sense the other vehicles around them. It's called connected vehicles, vehicle-to-vehicle uh, -vehicle communications, and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications. And the reason that it's important for us as public agencies to understand that opportunity and to help the private sector explore it even further is that knowing we can't build all these capacity that many of our users would like to see, uh, we can, through very, relatively small investments in understanding these technologies, 
perhaps squeeze more out of the capacity that we already have, take advantage of those lane miles that are out there, and create a safer, more efficient system for them to be able to use through the use of technologies. One of those uh, most readily available that many of us use today is understanding through our traffic management centers, which is this kind of future futuristic technology that was dreamed of 30 years ago, we know before we leave our homes in the morning or perhaps our offices in the afternoon by dialing into those uh, systems or looking at the media outlets that provide that information, which routes are best for us to take, where congestion may be occurring, perhaps where a work zone is or an accident is occurring, and to take an alternative route around it. So by understanding what these technologies have to offer, uh, we believe that those uh, investments will play pay dividends many times over to our users as they get more out of the capacity that we already have today. Hmm. Uh, Deirdre, we're going to have a mostly new set of people leading the state next year. What are you hoping to see from the next governor and legislature on transportation? And is any of that including, you know, making Texas more prepared for thinking of self-driving cars? I think the focus on policy for policy leaders and both candidates for governor is, is funding for transportation, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that a focus on thinking about future technologies and their impact on the transportation system isn't going to be part of the discussion. Um, you know, I think that you'll start you'll see things like um, you know our, our laws don't allow for things like self-driving cars on our mm -hmm. roads, and so. I think there will be baby steps into the discussion with the legislature, and certainly through the appropriations process, since TxDOT is requ requesting some funds for this project, um, we'll start having that conversation. But I hope, my hope for the legislature and the political leadership is that they have this discussion with an open mind um, and not just sort of dismiss it because it is so important for TxDOT to have this discussion now. I mean, isn't this what? lawmakers want agencies to do, look ahead, see into the future, and try to predict what's going to happen, rather than constantly being reactionary like we are with self-driving cars. I mean, we saw that technology out there, but didn't plan for it. Now we're seeing all sorts of technologies that uh, impact transportation, things as sophisticated as self-driving cars, and things as simple as Uber and Lyft. I mean, we have regulatory systems put in place that have been in place for decades for our transportation system that don't mesh up with how people are actually wanting to consume transportation now. So rather than constantly being reactionary and losing out on opportunities, I mean, for example, Hayride was here in Austin. It was one of the first peer-to-peer -peer sharing apps. They sold out because the city of Austin shut them down because of our laws. I mean, maybe they could have been, we, I would have thought that we would love to have an, an Uber or a Lyft here in Texas if we had had the regulatory environment. I think what TxDOT is doing is very smart and sends a message to the technology, the trans, transportation technology world that TxDOT wants to be on the leading edge. Come to TxDOT, I mean, sorry, come to Texas, risk your capital here, you know, do, create the jobs here, and you'll have a, a welcome environment. Uh, Congressman, you've seen transportation planning from kind of several different angles as working in state government and in Texas and more recently in D.C. from Congress. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of how you see what the difference is between how Texas tackled transportation and, you know, how, how Congress looks at it. Well, when you talk about planning, there's a difference in the, in, in the meaning of planning in Texas and in Washington. <laughs> Let me tell you, big difference. Uh, but I do want to say, before I answer that, I want to say uh, that how proud I am to represent the people of Texas because 
You talk about transportation in our committee hearings and so forth. Uh, Texas is always the role model. Texas is always, can we do it like Texas does it? And uh, I just think that uh, we are visionary in Texas, and people at TexDOT, they get it, as they say. And, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's an honor to be able to deal with people that understand the problems. Uh, I think that when we talk about planning up in Washington, of course, we've heard already about we need funding. Uh, and immediately that reminds me of the Highway Trust Fund that we know is bankrupt right now in Washington, D.C. For the first time ever, the Highway Trust Fund is bankrupt for some obvious reasons. I mean, the only income going into the Highway Trust Fund is the 18.4 cents that you put from the gasoline that you put in your car. But we have other people drawn out of it that don't pay into it, which is a bad model. I mean, we've had, you know, you've got mass transit, you've got bicycle pass, you've got museums drawn out of the Highway Trust Fund. They put nothing in. So we've got to address that. Uh, we also have to come up with a permanent uh, stream of funding so uh, Texas can plan on what their needs are and so forth. Uh, I've, I've proposed some ways to help uh, create some permanent funding in the Highway Trust Fund that I think will work. It's all the way from repatriate, uh, repatriation of money overseas to letting uh, the private sector drill on, uh, on federal lands and take the royalties into the, into the uh, Highway Trust Fund and keep the 18.4 cents in there. Then you have something that's a steady stream that runs with inflation and uh, that, that, that uh, we can count on because at the end of the day, we've got to be able to move people and product, not only in Texas, but in America. And if we're going to grow our country and couple it with some opportunities we've got, we've got to have good highways, and you've got to be able to budget, and we're not being fair to Texas right now. Well, Mike, you actually just wrapped up a four-day conference in Austin for the Toll Road Industry's leading advocacy group, which you're, which you're the president of. Uh, and it was really interesting. I, I attended a conference a couple of days, and... People from all over the world were there, and it seemed they really recognized Texas as a leader in adopting tolling for, for our transportation system. Uh, and obviously, a lot of that has to do with the lack of funding, but something I was hearing at the conference, and I was wondering your thoughts on this, is the idea that in some, in some cases, tolling might be better because you're, you're, you're only, only the people that use the road are the ones <coughs> paying for it, rather than a lot of people who aren't going to use that road. Yeah, and I want to jump back to, to I guess I'm on, uh, to what John, John, your question was too, is one of the participants in the panel was uh, from Illinois Tollway. She's the executive director of Illinois Tollway. And they are retrofitting, going back and re-renovating an entire 60-mile stretch of one of their tollways that was built 50 years ago. And now what they're doing with that is uh, inputting all of the electronic communication devices that are needed between infrastructure and the cars. Our roads are going to get much smarter than they were. Uh, and what this is is a major pilot that the, the entire nation can look at and say, that makes a lot of sense. And I think to get to that point with the connected vehicles, I think we'll see them connected to the infrastructure first and then connected to each other. And then I think we'll probably see the autonomous. It's going to take a while. Um, but I, you know, I think we, we miss some of the point when we say that the only reason we're doing toll roads is because of the financing. That is a, that is a significant issue, but there's also other reasons for that, uh, the, not the least of which is that it does offer you a higher level of technology. You do get to make your existing corridors smarter. Um, as an example, right now in Austin, we have a Mopac corridor HOT, it's actually uh, just a managed lane. It's, it's a congestion price lane. We, don't, we never had an HOT component. Uh, but that corridor 
is supported by both environmentalists and the tolling industry and those who just want some congestion relief and reliability. If, if somebody had come along and said, we were going to drop $300 million in your, in, your, in your lap, go build it without you know, having it tolled or managed, then we would be right back where we are in another couple of years. Uh, what we're going to be able to do in that situation is price it so that we can keep the traffic moving at 50 to 60 miles an hour. That's, that is the marker for that road. It's, it, that's why tolling in that particular case works. We have put about a billion dollars of roads on, in the Austin area, um, and that billion dollars would translate to uh, average home for four or five hundred dollars a year in taxes that are not going to be paid because the users pay them. Now, is it right everywhere? I don't think it's right everywhere. Uh, would we move aside if uh, Austin area got another billion dollars? I think we would take a look at the projects that could be done with without tolls, but. Until that happens, we got to keep pushing forward, and we're, I'm with you. We're not planning, we're developing. We are actively developing facilities uh, throughout the region, throughout the state. This Texas is a toll road experiment, but it's also about uh, all of the facilities that are being built, not just toll facilities. And uh, Michael? Uh, I see a pattern here. You seem to be <laughs> coming down the line. Uh, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Dallas-Fort Worth and tolling. Uh, there's so many toll projects there that have developed in the last few years, and you know, you heard, I've heard from some critics, even one in a panel earlier today, the idea that maybe at least parts of North Texas are reaching a saturation point on tolls, and I was wondering if you agree or if you feel like just Dallas-Fort Worth is growing so fast that you need to find a way to expand the network. Well, this is a planning panel, and mm -hmm. I, I want to underscore the importance of planning. Twenty years ago, uh, if you wanted to put something into the transportation plan, it was just loaded with lots of things, and no one understood <clears throat> what the future was. Mm -hmm. And then the planning rules changed, and I want to give credit to the federal government who said, you know what, the public deserves to know what is being built and what isn't being built. So you have to have a plan that's, quote, financially constrained. Mm -hmm. In Dallas-Fort Worth, we took that very seriously. We said we're going to have an honest conversation with the public. Uh, this is how much money the federal government will have. This is how much money the state government will have. We knew we were on the verge of new federal cafe standards. We, were, we knew we were on the verge of huge change in miles per gallon. We forecasted the revenue streams over 20 years. And we said, wow, we've got to put everything we can into the maintenance of this infrastructure. The post-World War II bridges are going to be getting older. If we want new capacity, it's probably going to have to be told. We had an honest conversation with the citizens of the region and local elected officials. And we said, new roadways are new rights away. In our region, have been waiting at the time 30 years. Uh, let's build them as toll roads and keep every penny we have for the maintenance of the system. So we said, new roadways have to be looked at for their toll capability. If we're widening a freeway, we have to see if an express lane is warranted that could possibly be tolled. And we will not convert any free lanes to toll lanes. That three-legged stool, uh, the last being no conversion from free to toll, is now in state law. So Dallas-Fort Worth, in strong partnership with the Texas Department of Transportation, with tools given to us by the state legislature, um, we, we marched off and, and built projects that were, were on the books for 40 years that are now open to traffic. And I think we have a true partnership with TxDOT 
being able to put express lanes in the middle and have that revenue help pay for the infrastructure forever of those frontage roads and main lanes. The conversation I think we have to have, because uh, you know, people immediately say, you know, we hate toll roads. I don't, think our, I don't think we like toll roads. I don't think our elected officials like toll roads. But we do love mobility, and we love safety, and we want to reduce fatalities, and we love economic development, and we want jobs to stay in our region, and we like quality of life. And the conversation is, what is it about a toll road? I know, I know the emotional appeal. I hate all toll roads. But pull that onion skin just back for a moment. When you go buy a loaf of bread, you choose what bread it is and how much it costs. There isn't a tax on everyone to buy bread, and then people go get bread for free. You pick and choose those particular elements. I think the, the most significant libertarian argument that could be raised, if you go back to the founding of this country, a lot of things were told. Uh, bridges and ferry connections and... and uh, small hall transportation of goods movement. So you elect to buy the commodity or you don't. The really cool thing about toll roads is if you, if you don't buy the commodity, you actually benefit because other people are traveling on the toll facilities. If you wish to pay that particular uh, toll, especially if you're on a dynamically priced express lane in our region, you have a guaranteed level of service as a result of that particular item. So you've got to catch a plane, see your kid play baseball, not want to pay higher daycare costs, Go ahead and take it. If you don't, don't take it, but you'll actually benefit. The difference, of course, is if you're taxed, you're paying that tax, and you know some poor family in East Texas may or may not get mobility improvements as a result of that particular tax. Now, I hope the pendulum shifts. I hope we, we do uh, support the congressman's effort in making sure there is a national government and transportation with strong funding and um, I have to be silent on how people should vote in the proposition election in November, but I hope they go and vote their will. And I hope the momentum that uh, Mr. Lisi is bringing to not just the election, but to new legislative change happens. And it's not all about money. I, I like John's question. I think the expectation from us as transportation planners for our region is you should expect to get 10% more out of technology. 10% out of transit, working with local governments, 10% out of mixed-use developments and walkable communities. Why do we let the horse get out of the barn? And then we chase it down through expensive transportation modes. Why don't we establish you know, partnerships with our local governments and shorten those trips and create mixed-use developments? So I think there's lots of things that can do it. We certainly have lots of them in our region. I think we're proud of our accomplishment, but it's not the only tool we use. It's the one that gets maybe a lot of play. Dallas-Fort Worth has the longest light rail system in the country. A lot of people who, who don't like toll roads probably don't like transit even more. So uh, uh, lots of tools uh, to do it. Uh, we're very proud of our, the toll facilities and, and would like to see more balance on land use and some of the mm -hmm. other things in our communities. And so is it safe to say that there is there are, there, even with all the projects going on in North Texas now, there are some, there may be some more toll projects in the future in North Texas? Yeah, I think the, the policy is uh, if we have a major freeway, we test to see if a, a, an express lane is warranted, meaning there's lots of people going a significant distance 
where you can actually put them on a standalone facility. Sometimes they're warranted, sometimes they're not. <clears throat> We're the ones that stand up and say, gee, at least these 12 facilities will have maintenance money over the next 50 years. I can't honestly tell you all these other facilities will have maintenance money over the next 50 years. But that's our obligation. Mm -hmm. You know, we're paid at a metropolitan planning organization to stand up, not to the 6.7 million people that live in our region now. Our job, as assigned to us by Congress, is to stand up to the 10.5 million people that'll be in Dallas-Fort Worth in the next 30 years. And our job is to say, not in 2040, what should we have done in 2014? Our job is to do something in 2014 for the people that'll be in this region in 2040. And why? Why is that so important? 80% of the GDP of this country is in the top 40 metropolitan regions of the United States. So Congress knows that if they know the importance of transportation and they know the importance of metropolitan transportation and they know if trucks aren't moving and jeans aren't being delivered and milk isn't being delivered, it has horrible implications to all the important quality of life things like jobs and, and other things that we have. Thank you. And uh, you, you mentioned light rail, and I wanted to ask any of the panelists that want to jump in on this. Uh, I want to talk about public transit. Is Texas doesn't have the greatest history of being a very popular a place with a lot of public transit use. Uh, and San Antonio Streetcar Project just died. Uh, it, and you know Austin's trying to expand its urban rail. There's a high-speed rail project, you know, being considered from Dallas to Houston. Should, do you feel the state is doing enough on public transit, or sh should they be doing more? And, you know, the, I've heard the criticism that the way Texas is spread out, it's just public transit doesn't really have a, is, is never going to get mass adoption. And just is some, is, should the state be doing something to try and address that? Uh, John? Well, I think it starts with the conversation about local choices. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as you look at the history of the state and why perhaps public transportation has been uh, less successful than in other parts of the country, it's, I believe, if you dive into the details, it's partly because of the density of population. Uh, some communities in other parts of the state have a much more higher density of population. And as Michael pointed out, in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, they have one of the largest light rail systems in the nation, and it's been successful because that density has started to occur over time. Uh, we at the state level uh, encourage uh, thoughtful consideration of all options and choices for transportation for our users. Uh, we're supportive of those local planning activities that the metropolitan planning organizations and those local governments carry out. And at the Department of Transportation, our role is to support and enable those solutions when they choose to make those a choice and to help them understand what those options are and how that might uh, be integrated to the rest of the system. And perhaps that's really the biggest question that we should be asking ourselves is how do we take all these different modes of transportation and appropriately integrate them into a larger system so that as people and products and cargo move around the great state of Texas, that the seamless transfer of activities from one mode of transportation to another is more effective and efficient. It's not just roads and public transportation, but there are pipelines, waterways, rail, airports that all need to be integrated. And that's what uh, our Department of Transportation is trying to focus more and more on to build a larger conversation around because um, we believe that um, through thoughtful consideration of how to integrate the entire system, uh, that all modes of transportation and choices that people make will be more efficient and get more out of those systems than they do today. Uh, 
Mike, I was the Central Texas RMA has been doing some efforts to try and help. You know, while it's is has some toll facilities, it is also trying to use them to enable public transit a little more. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, you know, I, that's one of the things that I wanted to get our organization wrapped around right at the beginning was that we're not. I don't want to. We're not a regional toll authority, mm -hmm. regional mobility, and we've got a couple of really exciting projects going on right now. Uh, one of them, a couple of them, are federal highways. One of them is carpooling. Uh, trying, you know, we can talk about relieving congestion all day long, but if you don't get people to change behavior, it's not going to happen in a large scale. In the Austin region, we have 900,000 empty seats going in and out of the city every workday that aren't filled by people who are driving single occupant cars in and out of the city. Um, 900,000. Um, now, it's hard to get people to change behavior. If you want to get away from spending money, not going to raise gas tax, not going to have toll roads, not going to do all this, then fine, get in a car with somebody else and drive in with somebody else or to somebody else's. That would work. That would make a significant difference. But until we start seeing that behavior change, it's not going to happen. So we have a program we're, we're piloting called Karma that connects people with smartphones. That's what the young folks want. And even some of us older guys are, are starting to catch on. Uh, you can easily connect with somebody. It's, it's screened. It's high security level. And you just connect it to a domain say, I'm going in downtown Austin to a marathon. I don't want to drive by myself in that mess. Jump in a car with somebody else. It's an easy way to connect. We're also piloting another one called Metropia, which is uh, outside. You go out there, you see this. Metropia, that is really a cool program. It actually, it, it, you get up in the morning and say, I'm going uh, destination downtown. It will actually give you the best route downtown given the capacity and the overall system. Not toll roads, not expressways, whatever. It could be 10th Street. And it tells you the best way to get there. And it rewards you with points toward a, a prize at the end of the day, like open table. Uh, and this, too, is getting a really good response early on. So what we're trying to we know we can't build our way out of congestion. That is a, that is a fundamental truth in Austin. 85% of our people on the interstate are us. Or everybody that wants to complain about people on the interstate going over to 130, you really, it's not them, it's you. Because you're getting in, on and off the interstate every day, multiple times, and it's really our local traffic that's the issue. Uh, so I think we gotta have a, we gotta look at all the solutions um, and we can't be fixated on one versus another, whether it's transit or whatever. We've got to have some behavior change in this mix. And right now, we're not getting it. Uh, Deirdre, Mike mentioned building our way out of congestion. That made me think about something I've heard a lot uh, as I've been covering transportation is the idea that Texas is very, um, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to develop land in Texas than lots of other parts of the country. Governor Perry mentions that all the time in terms of Texas versus California, but that also seems to encourage people moving further away from their jobs and sprawl, and that does add to traffic. And should do you feel the state or even local community should be doing anything to combat that, or because it seems like that could just keep getting worse and worse? I mean, I think those are discussions that are appropriately held at the local level, not mm -hmm. the state level. I mean, the way we encourage planning is a grassroots-driven process. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, any time that there has been a perception that the state has reversed that and tried to do it the other way around, it's been not well received. So uh, those are definitely discussions that happen that, that do and 
should happen at the local level, and, and they happen every day across the state. And I think the nature of those conversations are different in Austin than they are in the Metroplex, um, which is not surprising. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people, you see a lot of people who who want these mixed-use developments. It's what they 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 love. They want to be able to you know walk to the grocery store, walk to the movie theater, you know, get into the urban rail system, get downtown. Um, so it's not, that's not everyone's thing. Like, mm-hmm. if I could see my neighbor's house, like, right there, it would drive me crazy. But those are local decisions. And then, and, and the state has, you know, the state can support it um, through how we send transportation dollars down to the locals, but um, it's best held at the local level. Can I, can I throw a little bit in there? Sure. Real quick. Yeah, you know, being a local official for 23 years, Land use is really tough in Texas. It is a tough, particularly for counties. But I think we got to get ourselves around how, you know, we keep hearing all this, we're going to densify downtown. We're going to make it, you know, bringing everybody, they're not going to move out in the suburbs anymore, they're going to live downtown. If you go down and look at the 52-story building downtown, the residential tower, how many people live in that thing? About 300. And now we still we're talking about building maybe another dozen of those. Okay, so now you're up to 3,000. You know how many people we're going to get over the next? I mean, we're going to get a million people in 25 years. It's just not going to all happen downtown. <laughs> if you put 100,000 people in the urban core from 183 south to and south to the river, you would have the biggest uprising from the existing neighborhood councils that you would ever see because <laughs> it requires density. Mm-hmm. They don't want density. So you've got a real dilemma in Austin. And I think, to the point being, you're still going to see a significant amount of development, single-family residential development, out in Round Rock, out in Pflugerville, down south. Um, Round Rock, when I was on the council, was 8,000. Now it's 118,000. That's where people want to go. They vote with their dollars. We're not going to change that overnight, and we're not going to get them all into a million-dollar condo downtown. Uh, Amon, I think one of the themes that's coming out today that's important is we need more approaches and more options as the key. I mean, John started with technology and mm-hmm. land use. And, and I think it isn't a top-down solution. It is bottom-up. But if you have 10 or 12 ways to do it, and city of Irving, Texas, wants to increase density around their new rail line, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean it's in downtown Dallas, but it could be around rail stations in the older part of Irving or old town Louisville or downtown Plano wishes to do something associated with rail, it doesn't always mean, and then Dallas does have 42-story towers, but it doesn't always mean that. And I think, I think the whole theme is choice. If someone wants to buy five acres and move in the country, I, I think that's great. Um, but more and more people, something like 25% of the people between 20 and 30 years old don't even have a driver's license. So I think we in transportation should respond to all opportunities for choice. Transit in Dallas-Fort Worth is only important in about seven quarters. We have probably 300. Rail is not warranted in 300 quarters. Um, There are cities who are doing a great job, say, in land use or mixed-use development or the role of bicycle pedestrian or whatever. But bicycle pedestrian isn't for for every quarter. It might be, you know, seven key quarters. I think planning, the art of planning and, and the technology and all of us having to do more with less is to find the right thing that's effective in the right situation. That we shouldn't be religious zealots for, for each thing and try to apply it everywhere. 
we should be the ones that help nurture the right choice in the right situation. I believe if you take those 10 and implement them at the local level, you will have the ability of uh, adding quality of life to your community. I think it's happening all over Texas. That's why I think so many people are coming to, to Texas. But you know, transit isn't the right answer everywhere. It certainly is the right answer somewhere. And I think every tool is the right answer somewhere. And don't try to prescribe top-down what is the right planning approach, but nurture that uh, bottom-up. Then you'll have Ubers will, will integrate into the marketplace. And your carpool matching program will meet, meet in the... And I hope to someday work with John and have driverless vehicles. Don't want to scare you, but I think the first driverless vehicles will not be cars, but will be trucks. But why can't we move trucks through our metropolitan regions at 3.30 in the morning and move them then and not during the peak period and take technology of driverless tr truck vehicles with huge excess capacity between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning and just move goods at night and do it maybe with technology. So you're doing demand management, you're doing technology at the same time. That, I think, is the future of where we're heading in transportation. Is that something you hope TxDOT is We'll look into more, not just cars, but trucks self-driving. Yeah, so as, you, as you think about the challenges that we face, and Mike brought it up, uh, there is an issue with truck traffic. Not only is it uh, an impact on the rest of us that aren't driving those vehicles during those peak periods of AM and PM travel, but it's also a, a challenge because there aren't enough truck drivers to supply the demand that is out there for them. We've heard that all across this nation and in Texas where we're blessed with the blossoming oil and gas industry. There's even a greater demand. Technologies are out there that are being developed by Daimler and others that would allow perhaps a caravan, if you will, of trucks that have one driver in the front and two or three that are trailing it, uh, being led by the driver in the front. And if you can imagine that, you could, if it were four trucks, you could move four times the commodity with one driver, and you could do it in the middle of the night uh, so that that driver works those off hours. And then as we're all at work wanting our products delivered to our homes, our businesses, our grocery stores, and other places, uh, those drivers that have had to be asleep because of those regulations that have been placed on the trucking industry could be delivering those in smaller vehicles. So it is a technology that's uh, being explored by the private sector. Daimler is leading the, the charge in that and believes that by the year 2025, they'll have an autonomous-like truck out there on the market that's been tested, proven, and, and ready to deploy. And Europe is leading the effort in, in advancing that activity. But here in Texas, it's an an idea, a concept, a technology we feel like is worth exploring, and we've been in conversation with our flagship universities and research institutions to understand it better and to talk to uh, policymakers and public sector interest on how we need to envision that, uh, develop policies and practices around it to ensure the safety of the traveling public. Congressman, beyond funding issues, is, is there anything you feel that uh, federal government should be doing to facilitate, you know, transportation progress in terms of self-driving cars or any other kind of innovations? Well, I'm in the car business. I don't know about these self-driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> but, aside, but aside from that, I think one of the big problems that, that as the federal government, what we give to, our, to everybody here on this panel and TxDOT and so forth, is, you know, we don't even have a highway bill out. I mean, you know, we, we should, there, there's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of energy when we get back uh, say the first of next year, mm -hmm. to begin to talk about a six-year bill 
that all these experts can manage and begin to plan. You talk about planning, now you're planning. But, you know, now we just, we, 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 it's stop and go driving with this. You don't know where we are or whatever. It's just like the highway trust fund goes bankrupt the other day, and we, and we, and we put a Band-Aid on it to take us through May. What are we going to do in May? You know? So uh, uh, what we, I think we can do as a federal government is to begin to, to, to operate uh, the government like a business uh, and, and, and our committee like a business. And I will tell you, one of the great things about being in our transportation infrastructure committee is it truly is a bipartisan committee. Now, that is a, that's hard for people to believe. We have something that's bipartisan up there. But it is. And, and, and to every person, Democrat and Republican, we all agree that the highways need repair. We need to come up with a bill that lasts about six years. Uh, we need to find a way to pay for this stuff. Uh, and the bridges are falling down. We all agree to this. So we're able to pass some things, but, but then it gets to, to the fact, how do we pay for it? And, and much like what we're hearing today on new roads, whether we told or not. So I think from a federal standpoint, the message that I would give everybody here is that we need to begin to act like business people. Uh, we, need to, we need to have a, a stream of funding for the Highway Trust Fund that I talked about earlier. We need to have a six-year highway bill that people can plan on what their needs are and basically take care of our customer, which is the states and the people that drive on these roads, with the idea if you couple that with creating a tax situation, much like what we have in Texas, in America, to bring more jobs, more people, to run our roads, then you've got something happening. But right now, uh, you just don't know from, from one day to the next where we are. We've got to fix that. I'm one guy, but I'm a business guy, and that's really a big charge that I have is to get back and let's get, and get some true planning. Let's plan like the states plan. If we do that, we'll be in pretty good shape. Just to add, Congressman Williams, there were some people handing Band-Aids out earlier. I want to give you that one because uh, you're right. We don't, we don't need another Band-Aid solution to our transportation I we funding said no challenges. Uh, but your points are, are spot on that, uh, you know, for Michael Morris and his colleagues at the Metropolitan Planning Organizations to do their jobs correctly, for the State Department of Transportation to address the needs that our public has, we have to have an understanding of what the future holds for us in terms of funding. And I know that early panels talked about that. But uh, having these short-term solutions uh, doesn't allow us to have thoughtful consideration about those long-term needs and how we can address them. And so having a six-year bill or a, a permanent type of understanding of what could be expected is critical to the future of this state. And we appreciate your leadership in trying to advance that conversation. Well, I'm going to open it up to the audience in just a couple of minutes. If anyone has any questions, you can uh, line up at the mics over here and here. But before we do, uh, Michael, I was hoping to talk to you a little bit about this fascinating debate that's popped up in Dallas recently. Uh, this group has... All our debates in Dallas are <laughs> Well, applying to what we've been talking to, this group uh, has... A group of activists has launched this campaign to tear down uh, a 1.4-mile elevated freeway, I-35. And they argue that this freeway is kind of hampering the neighborhood's development. If they were to tear it down, it would revitalize neighborhood, make it more pedestrian-friendly, uh, promote affordable housing, and even talk about the idea of uniting the city better, that they feel like they're putting a lot on this roadway as you know, how it's hurting the city in their mind. And I know you've come out against tearing it down, and I was hoping you could just talk about that debate and your thoughts on it. Well, I'm sure, sure glad I came today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's your band name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should just pass uh, that around. 
I very much uh, appreciate the, uh, the interest and the power and the uh, zeal. Uh, because as I said earlier, I think one of the tools we need to have is to have local government create uh, greater opportunities for the land use part. <clears throat> and if you fix the land, you, land use part a little better, have it be density or whatever, just not 10 mile by 10 mile square homogeneous residential, where if you need a Band-Aid, you have to get in your car and, and go get it. Um, so that part is important. Um, a mile and a half from there, um, working closely with TxDOT, we are taking down a freeway, uh, SM Wright. It was a freeway that maybe should not have been built in this particular neighborhood. And it's a freeway that literally has almost a 90 degree turn to it. And when I say it's not uncommon for trucks to turn over, a fuel truck turned over there a few years ago while we were planning on taking down the freeway. And uh, TxDOT's been a great partner in, in getting this updated. And of course, we're updating it for not just safety purposes, but land use purposes. So working with the state, the RTC and TxDOT is extending the roadway over to Interstate 45. Uh, it's only 4,000 feet. And then once that connection's made, this over, overhead section comes down. So here we are also uh, trying to do a very similar thing. The, the point is, and this gets it, I love pro-neighborhood. I also, I also, also love pro-region, back to gross domestic product and things. I happen to be the region guy, so I like neighborhood and region. I think we should focus on neighborhood region and, and at the same time work on international logistics patterns that create jobs, working with Congress. I think you can do that. In this particular case, I think it's a, a pro-neighborhood position. Um, I don't think it's a very pro-regional position, and it is an interstate highway, and it isn't a very pro-NAFTA trade international goods movement position. So what, I've, what we've offered is, why don't we, since it's an overhead section, mm -hmm. why don't we work with you and, and do something like we did on Central Expressway or what we're doing on LBJ or what TxDOT is going to try to do on I-30 at Fair Park and see if we can lower the freeway and then create the ability of development across uh, similar to the benefits you have with uh, the pedestrian cap over Woodall Rogers, if people are familiar with that. But it's, the answer seems to be not necessarily the win-win I'm seeking and the RTC seeking, and by the way, everyone above my pay grade is seeking, is the ability of potentially lowering the main lanes to creating this benefit of economic development and transportation. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be the benefit of economic development and neighborhood at the expense of those others. So unfortunately, you know, we seek a win-win and so far it's, we don't need it. Our facility was 70 or 80,000 and we're moving them over to an interstate highway that had excess capacity. Mm -hmm. This volume is 200,000 cars a day and I have a PE license and an MPO responsibility and some of the safety implications of not letting 200,000 people travel between the region is something that I think is unintended consequences. So it's unfortunate it's gotten, you know, personal and, and pretty emotional and plays out regularly in the in media, but the local elected officials and the state elected officials and the congressional officials and the, and the state is going to go in and repair that bridge and we have the support of the city and the mayor and the council and 
we, we, we are pro-neighborhood, but we, we don't think it, in this case it's the right mix of tearing down a freeway that's carrying 200,000 cars a day. Hey, uh, John, you said, so TxDOT's working on repairing that freeway? Yeah, there's really two issues that are at play in this particular project. One is um, the condition of the existing structure, and uh, even if the decision were made today that uh, it needed to be eliminated and that a, a boulevard type of solution needed to be put in place, that would take years of planning, right-of-way challenges, utility adjustments, and how to uh, connect that system to the rest of the, the transportation network there. And, the Dallas community. And so in the meantime, we have over 200,000 vehicles per day traveling on this elevated bridge structure, and it has some structural element concerns that we need to address. And so we are moving forward with a maintenance project to make sure that that bridge is well-maintained and safe for the traveling public. And I want to assure everyone here and listening today that it is safe, <laughs> but it's our responsibility to maintain the safety of that structure. And so we are moving forward with a, a safety project to uh, maintain that facility and working with the Metropolitan Planning Organization, their leadership at the RTC, and the local community to study the complications and implications of the alternatives that have been suggested to see uh, if we can put all the ideas on the table, fully understand how they would impact the rest of the system, what their cost and impacts to the community could be, get the public's input on those. So at the end of the day, we can understand what that community wants, what it will cost, how it can be interconnected to the rest of the system, and make a well-informed decision rather than one that's based only on uh, an idea, a concept, or emotion that really hadn't been fully vetted. Okay. Well, I, want to, I, I have a couple more questions I could ask. I want to check if anyone in the audience uh, has any questions. We have microphones here and here. I would like someone from the audience that asks a question that requires me to hand this Band-Aid to one of the other speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be the last one holding no, the Band-Aid. Thank you, thank you, Congressman. Band-Aid's loaded with symbolism, I guess. <laughs> uh, yes. So uh, my question is, as we talk about sort of the, um, the federal dollars that are available through the gas tax and some of the dwindling um, returns on that gas tax, has there been any consideration of like an Oregon-style vehicle miles travel uh, tax or some additional alternative revenue streams that uh, might be available? Well, I'll answer that. Uh, we're looking at a lot of, a, a lot of alternatives. Uh, the situation you talked about where they have a, a miles travel gap where people pay more if they drive more uh, is something that is, uh, is looked at. Uh, there is no appetite, I will tell you right now, though, to raise taxes. There's no appetite to raise taxes over the 18.4 cents. Uh, so that's why we get back to things like uh, uh, how to fund it, uh, which I am promoting, as I said earlier, uh, royalties on uh, on uh, energy, on, on uh, federal lands, repatriation of two or three trillion dollars that's overseas generated by American companies, bringing that back in, uh, seems to have a lot of, uh, a lot of conversation in it. Uh, there's always a, a, an issue when you start talking about uh, uh, tracking or uh, where you follow people, et cetera, you know, is the, uh, uh, gets into what personal rights people have and so forth. So. Uh, we've got to come up with the answer, though, and it, it needs to be pretty quick uh, because we'll be back in the same situation in May. And, uh, you know, we, we, we put $15 billion in uh, at the end of September in the Highway Trust Fund out of the general fund. And I think all of you know what the general fund has in it, right? <laughs> and so we put that money in there to carry us through May. And, 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 I, and, the, and my experts here, my friends will know better than I, but just in Texas alone, we, we were if, if we hadn't done that, 
we'd had about $3 billion worth of funding or, or construction would have been on hold. And just in my district alone, that goes from Fort Worth through Austin into Hayes County, it was uh, 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 sizable millions of dollars, and jobs were at, at risk and so forth. So look, we've got to fix this thing. Uh, I personally am not for raising taxes, but I do think there's areas we have to have where things can run with inflation, things can be indexed and so forth. So, but the Oregon model is talked about, yes. And I, if I could tack on a little bit about that, Congressman. Uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, employs about 3,000 folks, and they're diligently working on the next generation vehicles and propulsion. Um, and if you look at the maps, if you look at the graphs on internal combustion engine over the next 10, 12 years, it's, it's not just a trend, it's a cliff. Um, I drove, I had to drive a Tesla. I mean, I, I was like amazed at what they can do in acceleration. I didn't get caught, but I did enjoy it. But, <laughs> but uh, I think this, there's, a, there's a window of opportunity uh, to try and fix things, but the, uh, the coming cliff for the gas tax is only about, I would say, 8 to 10 years away. Yeah. Well, and let me and add to that, too, is, 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 is what you're saying is, I mean, the cars are going to be required to get 52 miles per gallon, uh, 2025, that's I think right. it is. And uh, so just think what that's going to do to the 18.4 cents. I mean, just yep. so, so you've got to get away from that and get something that can be indexed, something that runs with inflation and can grow, and uh, that's, the, that's the dialogue right now. I can't help but notice that there's no one up here to talk about Houston, which maybe says something about the future of transit in Houston. <laughs> but, but I can think of three projects that are going on down there that have caught my attention. I was hoping anyone could weigh in on them and what you know about them and think about them. One is rerouting buses to, to follow routes where population growth has been over the past several decades. Another one is bus rapid transit as an alternative to light rail. And the third is a Grand Parkway loop road, which is... Just a, a massive loop project. Thank you. I, I'm going to jump in on two quick things. Austin, years ago, killed any hope, really, we could have some solution to congestion on Interstate 35 and, and Mopac and 360 when they killed the outer loop. The outer loop offered Austin the opportunity to move people around uh, a loop system, and that, that was taken off the table about 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago by design, and we're going to suffer the consequences of that through the history of Austin, because we are now trying to jam every, everything down these existing corridors. Uh, so what that gives us the congestion price, the express lanes, such as Mopac, where you will put uh, express buses. You don't express a bus by hanging a sign on it that says, I'm an express bus. You've got to get it in a lane that's actually moving consistently and reliably. <laughs> Mopac is going to allow that. The Katy Freeway allows that, and I know you guys are doing that. You're going to we we allow transit to go at no cost in those express lanes. Uh, so that if you're a rider on that on that toll road, you don't pay a cent other than to the transit. Yeah, I, I I don't want to speak for Houston, but I do want to address your your bus element, and John can speak to the Grand Parkway. Uh, we're on the verge now that you have these major express lanes on the freeway facilities, and the fact that we don't charge transit to get on there you're going to see an explosion of bus transit capabilities from a myriad of park and ride lots that I hope are integrated into land use. So you're, we're going to build these new, quote, stations that aren't just rail stations, but high-end uh, bus platforms 
with dedicated express lanes, not buses that are in stop and go traffic. So now that you can merge that technology with what is now, quote, a network or system, I think you're going to see, I don't know if that applies directly to your Houston question, but it does apply to a new generation of transit commitments and jobs. Yeah, Grand Parkway. And just to wrap it up, as uh, you mentioned, the Grand Parkway, a 185-mile loop around the greater Houston area is uh, under construction. Other elements of it will likely be under construction in the next two to three years, and there's already uh, a growing demand for that system because, as we've talked about, land use planning plays a key role in this. Uh, the population in Houston is on the path to double in the next uh, 15 to 20 years. And as more and more people move into the greater Houston area, they, they demand transportation services. And uh, so that, that uh, particular process of uh, thinking about that, understanding how land use and other activities at the local level are being planned for, the Grand Parkway was envisioned and uh, has actually been envisioned since the 1960s and is now becoming uh, a reality into fruition. Uh, it will be available, obviously, for uh, people that want to pay a toll, but there will also be uh, transit-oriented activities on it with these bus services. And, uh, again, uh, that is a local issue that uh, you spoke of in terms of the other two transit projects, but I agree with Michael. Uh, through the development of technologies and the understanding that flex the flexibility that bus-only and bus-rapid transit systems provide uh, as are compared to fixed guideway systems, uh, there's more and more apparently more and more uh, appetite for that, and I think it will be a, a solution to the mobility challenges that we face in some of our parts of our state that will become more acceptable and uh, will tend to grow over time. All right. You, then you. So the idea of mixed land use has come up a lot in this conversation, and I was wondering what exactly the conversation is looking like on the state level in terms of, you know, it's really a municipality uh, decision most of the time, but is there some sort of conversation that's being led on the state level to develop incentives or some sort of reason for municipalities to kind of jump in on this? Because it does affect the volumes on the interstates and all that. Well, let me go first and then I'll leave it. I hope the state doesn't get involved in it. I don't, I don't I'm not trying to be critical. I mean, the state has created home rule cities, home rule. Back. <laughs> I need my Band-Aid back, Mom, so that was very nice. Home, home rule cities uh, are very close to the people. The people are very close to what's acceptable in their particular community. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that they've created home rule cities to be governed by local elected officials close to the problem, I think those local elected officials are more than ready to see what role land use can play, and uh, I think it's already occurring. The, the role the private sector has played in taking financial risk to build certain developments hand-in-hand -hand with local elected officials looking at, you know, the new generation of of land use, redevelopment of some older neighborhoods. I think it's in really good hands. Land use takes time. We were in a slowdown period in the 9 to 13 time frame. Those days are over. You're seeing lots of stuff. Uh, I hope, I hope uh, the state continues to say this is a local initiative. I don't think we need a financial incentive to do things smarter. Um, but I think we should be held accountable at the local and regional level to not just knock on the door of the congressman and say it's always a money answer. I think we've got to demonstrate to Congress that we're using our tools and trying to be smarter and wiser in what we're doing. And, and they can say, well, in exchange for the innovative things you're doing, we'll do the best we can to find you more dollars. Anyone else want to add anything on land use? 
Land use is a regional issue. It's it's not a state, and that, it, you can't dictate or overregulate that world. The marketplace, the private sector marketplace, is pretty darn good at figuring out where they need to, to begin to use uh, land for commercial enterprises and, and, and where rooftops are. I don't think there's any uh, rocket science to it, uh, but I do think cities and, and particularly counties, when you come to water sewer streets, drains, the whole utility world, can be smart about where they help direct growth, but at the same time, unless people want to live there, it's not going to happen. I think density is the big issue for me. If Austin wants to do this rail system, which they're proposing on a the ballot, then they better figure out if they're going to overlay density along that line. Otherwise, I'm not sure I, I get it. It needs to have, as Michael said, you need to have density along there. That's a local decision. That's, that, that came from and our last question of the panel. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank you all for coming and sharing your insight on transportation issues. I'm a freshman here at the University of Texas. And Congratulations. As, <laughs> thank you. Um, and as both a millennial who loves nothing more than dictating her entire life from her smartphone and as a student at an urban campus, um, I love having access to apps like uh, Lyft and Uber. And so that leads to my question, um, has there been any research and development in terms of creating an app for ride sharing that's kind of more peer-to-peer -peer, um, if I'm going to target to find another student that I'm sure would also like to come with me? Um, and also, once that research and development has been done, how do you plan on promoting it to a generation that's not my age? <laughs> so uh, we have a new uh, initiative. I think there's one here as well. It's an app. It's under development right now. Two carpoolers uh, sign up to a particular program. We're trying to maximize um, uh, three park and ride lot park and ride lots in the new TxDOT managed land corridor between our two downtowns, <coughs> Dallas and Fort Worth. Hey, I, I, I want to carpool. Uh, meet you at the such and such parking lot. Everyone's pre-screened, pre-certified, security checks. You need a guaranteed ride home because if you carpool and uh, you you're sick. We're going back to that transit thing I just talked about. Transit vehicles will leave on the hour, uh, so you have a guaranteed ride home back to your particular car. Uh, we as engineers, I hate to use this because we need more marketing help. It's all about system. So you need technology. You need to be able to communicate it. You need a place to safely park your car. You need a guaranteed ride home with regard to it if some, someone's calling you back to and you need a dedicated piece of pavement that's going 65 miles an hour both in the car and in the transit vehicle. Too many people have tried things that, quote, weren't full system, and I think you're going to see a lot of applications in that regard shortly. I think technology is and will be a major part of our transportation solution to come. Do you, have you checked out the Karma app yet? No, I haven't. Karma, I love the name. But uh, other than that, Karma does exactly what you're talking about. It's not just for work and commuting to work. It's also for just connecting with somebody. When I was at the university, all I had was a bike. I, could, I would have loved to have been able to get to somewhere else. Of course, we didn't have Costco's. Uh, but check out Karma, and you can follow conversations on there, and everybody's screened, pre-screened, and then you, know, you share the cost of that, that trip, and it may cost you a buck or two to get from here to Target. So does karma get around the prohibition that the cities have put on, things we like Lyft to, and Uber? It's a good question. We had to work through that with the city and finally convinced them that this was not 
a Uber Lyft kind of situation. It wasn't competing with the taxis. And we, we did get um, that through yeah. this. I mean, so the fact of the matter is Lyft started, just as you talked about, it was on a student campus and it was students giving shares, rides sharing. You know, so what, when, in my day, when you go to the student union and pull off the piece of paper that you know, need a ride. Oh, you're like, not that old. Yeah, I am. <laughs> No. Yeah. So yeah. So that's what uh, that's what Lyft originally was, and you know, it's it's um, obviously Lyft and Uber are, are are growing pretty rapidly. But I think as a state, we're gonna have to address policies. Going back to what John originally talked about is making sure we don't have regulatory systems in place that prevent the fact that you had to go to the city of Austin and negotiate with them on essentially what is carpooling mm-hmm. is crazy to me. <laughs> It is, we have a regulatory structure that is decades old that is, you know, oh my God, the cab companies might get mad. Well, it's not how people want to, it's not how you want to consume transportation. So I would, I don't, it's, it's such a painful process to go city by city. I hope for one that the state addresses this issue and recognizes that technology and transportation is a good thing. And just to add, to add on, you know, as a public transportation provider, uh, a provider of public transportation services uh, at the state level. Uh, those are the types of technologies that make uh, mobility better, uh, more efficient for people. There are other applications. We talked about Uber and Lyft, uh, Karma, the application that Michael's talking about, the Metroplex. There's an app out there called Ride Scout that kind of folds all those together, and they're being developed more and more and more. And it's interesting to think back is when Deirdre was in college, she pulled a tag off of a piece of paper at a bulletin board. Uh, when my parents were in college, they used their thumb, but they didn't use it on a smartphone. They just stood on the side of the road and went like this. And it was still ride-sharing. And so uh, our role in place is to understand how the, the system benefits from that, uh, to work with policymakers to understand how to properly uh, take out regulation or to make sure that there's a security and safety element that's associated with it. And then to share data so that uh, if you are looking at karma, not only is it where there are people that you may be able to ride share with or to use other modes of transportation with, but what's the quickest, most efficient route to get from where you are to where you want to be, and vice versa at some point, perhaps communicating back to us where things are happening so we can respond more quickly where there's been snow or ice or an accident or congestion levels that are peaking. And so... um, all of these things are things that you and others uh, want to, to uh, take advantage of. We need to understand how we can help facilitate those and, and then perhaps uh, start providing that information out to users through multiple media. Uh, and uh, there's always a slippery slope of are you advertising for someone or are you just making information available to others? And that's kind of the role that we're struggling to play right now. And I will just add... I was just going to thank, thank them for their responses, but... <laughs> thank you. Well, I will just add that our next panel is on urban mobility, and the panelists include the mayor of Austin and an executive from Uber. So anyone interested in that should stick around. Thank you to my panelists. It's been great.